0: really something that it's been vindication. I mean, absolution in a sense for all the protesters on the streets who were saying, you know, this is not just an economic crisis. This is a governance crisis. This is corruption. So to your question of why do that, it was because we had no other place to go at that point of time. If the executive was captured, or at least it felt like it was, if our public representatives were not bowing to the will of the people and leaving office in spite of widespread protests, Then you have the judiciary to go to.
1: Hello, and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. In this episode, Liz Deva Barrett speaks to Sankita Gunaratna, the Deputy Executive Director of Transparency International Sri Lanka. This is the latest addition to our chapter on state capture and kleptocracy, and you can find other episodes on this theme on SoundCloud. Here, Sankita begins by describing the economic crisis in Sri Lanka and how systemic governance issues need to be seen as a root cause of the problems. She unpicks some of the tactics used by kleptocratic actors, but then describes how TI and others have fought back including for the use of strategic litigation and putting pressure on international financial institutions to prioritise stronger national governance arrangements. There are lots of lessons here on how state capture develops and how it might be rolled back. Enjoy the episode and thanks for listening.
2: I'm delighted to be here today with Sankita Gunaratna, who is the Deputy Executive Director of Transparency International Sri Lanka. Hi, Sankita. Hi, Liz. And we're going to be talking about recent events in Sri Lanka and TI's role there and the the efforts they've been making. So, Sankita, there's been a quite interesting development recently. Can you tell us about this latest event?
0: Yes. So, in mid-November this year, The Supreme Court of Sri Lanka delivered a monumental judgment related to the economic crisis that took place in Sri Lanka last year. Uh, You will recall last year, uh, since the start of the year, uh, Sri Lanka was in great turmoil. Citizens were out on the streets protesting because we were facing the worst economic crisis since independence in 1948. So what this meant was that uh, people didn't have access to fuel, the country's dollar reserves had gone so far down that we couldn't afford to import fuel for the running of the country. Basically, people were stuck at home. We were in effective lockdown. So and that means no electricity? No electricity. People were dying on the fuel queues trying to buy gas because there was such a shortage. And the economy crashed so badly. Inflation rose so much that everyone basically now is poorer by the half. In the country, yes. So it has been a terrible time for the country. So during this entire thing, TI Sri Lanka, along with a few other petitioners, and through another case, there were two cases filed in the Supreme Court of Sri Lanka, basically asking for accountability for the economic crisis because there were many excuses being given, such as the COVID pandemic for the economic crisis, but it was always our view that this economic crisis was not just caused by external factors, but uh, caused by a breakdown of governance in the country. Mm -hmm. So on that premise, we went to court along with three other co-petitioners in a case titled SCFR 195 of 2022, and our one was 212 of 2022. So in this, we were very clinical. One thing that we said was that uh, the decision to give corporate tax breaks as the fulfilment of an electoral promise by uh, President Gautha Paksha in the run up to his election, that that was a bad decision. Uh, the decision to not float the rupee vis-à-vis the dollar, the decision not to go or, or the delay in going to the IMF for assistance for the country, the decision to pay back our international sovereign bonds worth 500 million US dollars when we were at risk of running out of money, a country when we should have defaulted mm-hmm. because we had this patriotic kind of you know view that Sri Lanka never defaults on mm-hmm. its debt mm-hmm. even though we were basically running the country to the ground and taking a very imprudent decision in doing so. So we basically brought all of this before the Supreme Court asking court to look into the matter and, and hold them accountable. So the case was against former President Gotabe Rajapaksha, former Prime Minister Mahinda Rajapaksha. He was also, if you recall, President uh, two, uh, for two terms in Sri Lanka, mm-hmm. uh, former Finance Minister Basil Rajapaksha and two uh, central bank governors, Ajit Kumar Kabral and one more, and the Monetary Board of Sri Lanka and the Cabinet. And So hang on, I
2: just need to interrupt there. So <laughs> the President and the Prime Minister and the Finance Minister, they're all called Rajapaksha.
0: They're Which? all related here. Yeah? What's the story there? They're all brothers and they have been in power before. There was a time when we had one Rajapaksha brother as president and as speaker, you know, it really begs the question of how we look at conflicts of interest at the very apex of the country, Mm -hmm. the legislature vis-a-vis the executive, for example, you know, having one brother heading the executive and one brother heading the legislature is a conflict of interest in itself. But uh, there is a veneer of legitimacy to these appointments because they're elected through elections, legitimate right. elections. Mm-hmm. There are, of course, larger questions uh, to be answered there. But yes, to your question, they're all three brothers. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Okay,
2: so sorry to interrupt. So the three brothers, two central bank governors, also members of, of the monetary board.
0: So, t- so tell us about the decision of the Supreme Court. Yes. So just to go back for a second uh, to talk about why this case is important, it was filed while there were widespread protests across the country, hundreds of thousands of people out on the streets, and President Gothabi Raj was still in power. Right. His brother Mahindraja Baksha mm-hmm. had a former president and then Prime Minister Mahindraja Baksha had just resigned mm-hmm. in June when we filed the case. Mm-hmm. And the decision
2: was a pretty bold move then to file a case against a, a sitting uh,
0: in a yeah. in a sense, but also it needed to be done mm-hmm. because in a context where We have begun to ask the question whether Sri Lanka is a captured state. Mm -hmm. We felt like we needed to use all possible recourse to Mm -hmm. exhaust all available remedies. Mm -hmm. And so going to the judiciary and giving the judiciary a chance to review the acts of the executive, we thought would be useful, along with the other petitioners, of course. So in uh, its decision that was delivered just last month, three weeks ago, really, um, or just a month ago, Uh, The Supreme Court actually held that former President Gotabe Rajapaksha, former Prime Minister Mahindra Rajapaksha, former Finance Minister Basil Rajapaksha and two central bank governors and certain members of the monetary board were actually responsible for the economic crisis. They eschewed the excuse that was given that these were legacy issues, that these were policy decisions that were being implemented, that COVID was the cause. Mm -hmm. So they actually... Uh, debunked all of those responses Mm -hmm. and said that these respondents, these people had actually violated the fundamental rights of the Sri Lankan people. So let me go into the decision a little bit. Mm. So one of the excuses we often hear is that, you know, when we took on public office, these issues pre-existed us, you know, pre-existed our term in office. And the court said, you can't just say that these are legacy issues. When you take on public office, you have a responsibility to fix the problems, but you also have an additional responsibility not to further aggravate the issues. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so the court talked about acts as well as omissions of mm-hmm. these uh, individuals and officials. So mm-hmm. uh, please note these are public officials as well as uh, you know elected representatives. Yes. So the yep. decision okay. applies to both these classes of persons. Mm-hmm. The second thing court talked about was you know people often say when they're in public office that. Uh, This is government policy. I'm forced to, I have been compelled to implement this. I'm I'm compelled to carry out government policy. So court very clearly said that you can't say that. If you're the monetary board, if you're a public official, if you're a public representative, you each have to do your job. You can't just be an automaton that Mm -hmm. carries out uh, government, so-called government policy. The third thing the court very clearly said was that this wasn't because of COVID. This wasn't because of the war in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. There is no... Uh, exogenous circumstances that led to this. This was mismanagement, bad decisions and omissions. And, and it also said that by its acts and om- by their acts and omissions, these persons had violated the pu- public trust reposed in them by the people. Mm-hmm. So the public trust doctrine was invoked as well. There have been previous cases also of this nature, but not of this kind of monumental proportion. Uh, while these people are still effectively in power Mm -hmm. because you have to note, while there was a change of heads, uh, while the former president was effectively chased out and forced to resign because of the protests, uh, the person who came into power was the person of President Ramil Vikram Singh was first given the post of prime minister when Prime Minister Mahindra Rajapaksh was resigning in response to Uh public protests Uh and then through a constitutional election that happened in parliament through members of parliament is how he became president. So Mm -hmm. that begs the question of who he's the agent of, is it of the people Mm -hmm. of the previous regime that was chased out Mm -hmm. by the people Mm -hmm. and the people were calling for a resignation of the entire government Uh, asking the president to resign was the public you know the one call under which everyone united but it was in effect people saying we don't have faith in this government Mm -hmm. but we still have that exact government in power. Right, Same people in cabinet Mm -hmm. just turned around a little bit. Mm -hmm. I guess my next question is you talk about the court
2: talking about mismanagement Mm -hmm. also about violation of public trust but your Transparency International Sri Lanka, where's where's the corruption here? And also you mentioned earlier you know, a situation of a captured state. So
0: what's, what's the link here with corruption and with state capture? Mm, it's a very interesting question, Liz, because it's also something I've been grappling with quite a bit. You know, being part of TI Sri Lanka, you always wonder, are we expanding our mandate too much, seeing everything as corruption? So when I thought about this, you know, you can always see corruption as financial crime, as economic crime, and say it has to involve um, certain sums of money or you know bribes and kickbacks. But in contexts such as ours, you need to look a, look a little wider. You don't have the privilege, almost, and I say this quote unquote mm-hmm. privilege, of just considering corruption as an economic crime because you have abuse of power, abuse mm-hmm. of office, uh, abuse of process. For personal gain, which also in a sense neatly falls into Transparency International's definition of Mm -hmm. corruption, which is the abuse of entrusted power for personal gain. Mm -hmm. So that's why we have begun to call out potential state capture in Sri Lanka. We are consistently asking this question whether Sri Lanka's institutions, the legislative, the executive, whether its policies, whether its laws are actually being abused for the interests of the few rather than of the public. So this case is almost a textbook application of that of, of those questions of, of of state capture, because you have an instance of president keeping an electoral promise to corporates mm-hmm. um, while losing billions of rupees mm-hmm. as a setup tax break yeah, with the corporate tax breaks. Yep. Losing billions of rupees for the country right. while we were literally running our economy to the ground. Mm-hmm. And that was also done illegally. While there was no parliament in power, it was done through the executive, through the finance ministry, just instructing the uh, Inland Revenue to carry it out. So, There's an abusive process there as well. There as well. Uh And one year later, when Parliament was ratifying those regulations uh, or or that law, they knew already that it was making huge amounts of losses. They had the data at their fingertips Mm -hmm. and still chose to implement that law. So Mm -hmm. it really begs the question of, okay, Whose interests are you acting in? Why are you just towing the line, the party line, the, you know, pandering to power and not really doing your job of acting as a check on the executive acting as a check and and carrying out your function of being the custodian of, you know, and and, and having oversight, having a role of having oversight over public finance, mm-hmm. you know, as parliament. So then to answer your question, in this kind of context where we are calling out state capture we don't get to just see corruption as economic crime so we have to go a little broader and zoom out and see the bigger picture mm-hmm. great thanks that's really um
2: clearly explained and and then just thinking about you know what options were open to you as ti at sri lanka you know, why this particularly petitioning the court how did you
0: think about that yeah so more and more I think with the activism that happened around the protests also, people mm-hmm. started thinking creatively. And as I mentioned before, thought of using every available remedy and make no mistake. At the point when we went to court, it was a, it was a stretch to mm-hmm. think that the Supreme Court of Sri Lanka would hold so strongly against the executive. Even at the point when the decision was about to come out, we didn't even dare hope. That it would go this far. Mm -hmm. So it actually has been really something that it's it's been vindication, it's I mean absolution in a sense for all the protesters on the streets who were saying you know this is not just an economic crisis, Mm -hmm. this is a governance crisis, this is corruption. So to your question of why do that, it was because we had no other place to go at that point of time if the executive was captured Mm -hmm. or at least it felt like it was if our public representatives were not bowing to the will of the people and leaving office in spite of widespread protests, mm-hmm. then you had the judiciary to go to. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. And but then
2: the judiciary came through. So the Supreme Court was not captured yes. by so, these interest groups.
0: Yeah. Uh yes. So our Supreme Court has a good history of uh, first of all, you know, talking about victims of corruption and standing, mm-hmm. you know, of allowing people to come to before court in the public interest so there is a robust jurisprudence of and precedent of allowing citizens and organizations such as ourselves to come before court and there have been many historic judgments where They've, um, you know, held in favor of the petitioners in the public interest. And also one of the tactics that the petitioners used was to ask for a full bench of the Supreme Court Mm -hmm. instead of having the three usual judges to ask for a full bench of five judges Mm -hmm. headed by the chief justice. So then the chances of having a good decision of, you know, having a better split were higher. So that that Mm -hmm. is also and uh, that's also a testament to how important this case was also and the amount of sheer work that had to go into it. uh, Yeah, I mean, how long did it take, actually? I mean, this must be a huge amount of of work. It is a huge amount of work, and credit to the Supreme Court. They heard the case on a day-to-day basis for weeks on end at Mm -hmm. certain points. They called on the central bank to provide reams and reams of information, thousands and thousands of pages of communications between the central bank, the monitoring board, the finance ministry, all of that and they examined all of that in coming to this decision so it it was really really quick in that sense I mean and I mean it may be happenstance it also was that uh, one of the judges of the Supreme Court who had heard this case had to reach, uh, was retiring on the 15th of November mm-hmm. and so because they all of this work had gone into this uh-huh. uh, they had to deliver the decision before he retired because if not they would have had to hear um, the case all over oh again was right. a bit of the inside story <laughs> of uh, why the decision also uh-huh. came at that point of time.
2: <laughs> I see right gosh. <laughs> so in terms of thinking about this you know in terms of kleptocracy, state capture can you just describe you know, why you've seen it in that Regard. So what, what does your analysis show about what the kind of kleptocratic tactics
0: are or have been um, used in, in the past few yeah. years? As you said, we've started looking at Sri Lanka's problems from a kleptocry- uh, kleptocratic lens to see what tactics are being used in Sri Lanka. And when you put it all together, it really paints a stark picture. So, for example, you look at the weakening of accountability mechanisms in the country. Found in Sri Lanka, that during the 2015 to 2019 era, there were so many cases that were filed. There was a so-called good governance mandate for that government. And there was a financial crimes investigations unit that was set up to look at financial crime, for example. And then in 2019, President Guthabe Rajapaksha appointed Presidential Commission On political victimization Mm -hmm. that basically went beyond its own mandate and went after the law enforcement uh, officials who um, had done investigations into cases of corruption, Uh right? So you and and they went so far as to at one point tell. A court to stop hearing the case until right. they concluded their own hearings.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, this so direct seemed... interference, essentially, yes. with that enforcement process. Yes,
0: mm-hmm. and uh, this has now come into question before mm-hmm. court, and court is beginning to strike down these decisions. But it was so difficult to watch right? the weakening of these accountability mechanisms in that sense, and we had um, investigating uh, official officers. One of them. Fled the country the night of the uh, night of uh, President Gotabai Rajapaksha's uh, election, uh-huh. and was still, you know, pursued by by you know embassy officials being questioned for facilitating his passage uh-huh. out of the country. Then so being arrested and arrested. Direct
2: up. threat. Um, yeah. yeah.
0: And one of the uh, one of the investigators who remained in the country was actually arrested and only uh-huh. uh, sent out on remand much later, years later. So that is one tactic. Uh-huh. Then, if you look at the, sh- the constitution of Sri Lanka, we've had a 17th amendment to the constitution that brought in a constitutional council that was supposed to have checks on the executive's powers to appoint key officials like the Supreme Court judges, the Inspector General of Police, the Court of Appeal judges, you know, many other commission uh, appointments. That was a good amendment, the 17th mm-hmm. amendment. Then you had the 18th amendment come in a couple of years later that removed the two-term limit on the presidency Mm -hmm. that converted the Constitutional Council into a parliamentary council that had only politicians in it. So it effectively Mm -hmm. still had a body Mm -hmm. um, but didn't really introduce or or retain that independent Mm -hmm. check on the executive. Mm -hmm. Then you had the 19th amendment that went back and made it better than the 17th amendment. Uh Then again, the 20th amendment Uh and now we have the 21st amendment. Uh So you have the constitution being really bandied about, moved about and and um, in, in the language of Dinesha Samaradhan, Professor Dinesha Samaradhan, she calls it Sri Lanka's constitutional ping pong. Yep. Because, and we have the same MP sitting in Parliament voting over and over again mm-hmm. for constitutional amendments that are polar opposites of each other. Mm-hmm. So that kind of abuse of the constitutional process, of the constitution itself of the country. And a classic
2: kind of state capture, changing the rules of the game, in your own benefit but yeah
0: absolutely Mm -hmm. then um, you have the use of public officials consistently like in this particular instance to carry out your dirty work or politicians to carry out their dirty work so you have uh, public officials abusing state resources for electoral purposes we have many examples of those then you have the suppression of civil society and journalists and any kind of human rights defenders and dissenters so we've had this historically, the Prevention of Terrorism Act being used uh, against journalists who are said to have incited violence by just writing an article and who have been in remand for years and years, like 10, 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so
2: anyone who tries to criticise or hold to account, they get the harshest kind of yes. possible pushback.
0: Yes, or at least have to constantly consider the possibility of right. Yeah. So there is a lot of self-censorship that has mm-hmm. to happen. So you had... A poet, uh, being arrested for just writing something on Facebook, uh, Shaktika, for having written something on Facebook, uh-huh, and a poet. Plainly. yes, uh-huh. and then or not even a poet, somebody who just wrote a poet. Right. you know. Uh-huh. You had the protesters from the uprising last year being arrested, being questioned, and you had lawyers turning up in droves, and you know, flapping as they walked out of court because you know they managed to make bail. But mm-hmm. you know, it, it's this. Uh, pervasive oppression that keeps happening. So right now we have had an online safety bill, so-called online like safety that. bill that seeks to basically regulate all online behavior mm-hmm. where a commission that would be appointed by the president would be able to ask you to take something offline. It could be your personal Facebook. It could be any official platform. So so you constantly have this democracy sword kind of mm-hmm. hanging over you. And there have been consistent calls for the repeal of the Prevention of Terrorism Act that has been abused against Tamil minority, then after the Easter Sunday attacks uh, against the Muslim minority, mm-hmm. and then with the protests last year against the Sinhala majority mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. for just daring to dissent. Mm-hmm. To so protest. then
2: you also got this kind of impact on minority rights, yes. human rights. Yes, yeah. yes. There, mm-hmm. there
0: is that entire history mm-hmm. to that piece of legislation. And then... Uh, under the guise of actually doing away with that legislation, then they brought a Counterterrorism Act that was no better, and then an Anti-Terrorism Act that was again no better, and that actually was even more insidious mm-hmm. than the existing so-called Temporary Provisions Law, Prevention of Terrorism Act from the 1970s. Right. Uh, so that is another tactic, that mm-hmm. and there's a proposed NGO law that uh, would um, seek to regulate how NGOs access their finances, would force compel them to register with national authorities and then therefore subjugate themselves to further enhanced regulation. So that is also a tactic that is used. Then at certain points of time, we have found many government or public positions being offered to military personnel. Mm-hmm. So the COVID response in Sri Lanka, for example, was run by the military. We had a task force on... Cultural affairs that were largely military. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, we again, had the, who the sort of the Rajapakshas were quite close to the military? Yes, at that point of time, it was the Rajapakshas who were in power and that appointed these. Uh, then the health secretary was a, a military person, the uh, director general of C- customs was a military person. So, these are very civilian positions that were being held by then, mm-hmm. uh, military personnel. And, and the COVID response itself being handled by the military. I mean, I myself, you know, returning to Sri Lanka from, uh, you know, my stint in the UK, I was thinking, you know, this entire process being managed by the military, and then you'll have the Tamil minority in in, in the same plane going, going having to go through a quarantine process that's managed by the military. How mm-hmm. scary it must uh-huh. be in the context of forced disappearances in Sri Lanka of, right. of so many people who have surrendered themselves to. The authorities are in the last stages of the war who have gone missing, mm-hmm. and then you having to just subject yourself again to the military mm-hmm. in the context of the pandemic, you know? Right, yeah, so yeah, of course. So, in a, a post
2: conflict setting, and then suddenly the military is playing this very instrumental role in what is basically administration.
0: Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then, and then you have the manipulation of the media in Sri Lanka as a kleptocratic tactic. So, you have the state media which basically turns over changes sides overnight as the election elec- election results come out it mm-hmm. is uh, right. laughably mm-hmm. scary mm-hmm. um how those who were just propping up one person would then just be calling them traitors the next mm-hmm. morning or a couple of hours later you know so weaponizing of the state media but also you have major private media moguls aligning themselves with political parties as well mm-hmm. and so You have, just as you see across the world, polarization of the media along Mm -hmm. party lines as well. Of course, there are campaign financing implications there also. Then, of course, the weaponization of social media also, where you find concerted efforts to uh, manipulate the public narrative on certain things around ethnic lines, or it could be around gender lines, it could be about national security that happens in a very orchestrated harmonized way Mm -hmm. Um, so you see that manipulation as well and of course Sri Lanka's Mm -hmm. foreign policy being abused as well um, in aligning the state aligning itself with certain powers depending on who's in power Mm -hmm. so all of these and and many more when you when you view them together and another example is the suppression of uh, journalists uh, in terms of enforced disappearances so there are there's Lasanta Vikramatunga who was murdered, uh, there's Puddala Jayanta, there's several others who have gone missing and their their families have been looking for them for decades and they have just no closure mm. on, on what's going on and what happened to their loved ones. So when you look at all of this together, it actually paints a very, very stark picture of you. Almost have confirmation that it's a kleptocracy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this when, as you say, when you see all of this together, this looks
2: very systematic. Trying to control the rules of the game using the force of the state, the military, controlling the appointments and then the distribution of state resources, and completely closing down the accountability institutions. At one
0: point of time, there was data to show that over seventy percent of the national budget were under the Rajapakshis. Seventy percent. Yes cracking yeah
2: so then again you see yeah as you say the link with the you know, the theft as well and the yeah the but as I
0: said there's a veneer of legitimacy to these things because yep. the people have appointed them the people yep. have elected them so then you have a whole bunch of other questions to ask about you know how you make your decisions about your, your voting decisions your electoral decisions whether you're you know submitting to vote buying or whether you can make a critical assessment of Who best to elect into governance and this judgment really is a good warning to public officials and those that would seek re-election or election that um, you will have to pay for your crimes at the end of the day but also serves as a warning to the electors to the voters to be a little bit more careful to Mm -hmm. to look at these things when Mm -hmm. making the electoral decision
2: yeah interesting point yeah so in a way we have this quite sort of good resolution to this the institution's Came through, the judiciary came through with this decision, pushed back against this kleptocracy. But quite often, what you see in situations where you've got a captured state, as you've said, you know, so many of the, the domestic avenues are closed down. So the role of international actors often becomes quite important. So I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that, you know, whether there was international pressure that was. Helpful, or whether that played a role, either in sort of the last few years or or now going forward in terms of recovery and coming out of this.
0: Yeah, it is unfortunate to have to look to uh, to international actors for your domestic problems, right? So Mm -hmm. no one is jumping at the opportunity and trying to show off all of Sri Lanka's ills internationally. That is not an ideal situation for anybody. But where we're talking about the context that we just discussed, where state power is refusing to bend to the will of the people, so effectively representative democracy is broken, and you can't trust our so-called agents to exercise that agency Mm -hmm. in your best interest, then you need to look at outside recourse. And in this kind of situation, the strongest actors are those that are bringing the money into the country. So you have the IMF, you have the World Bank, you have the Asian Development Bank, you have uh, the international investors, and, and you have China, you have the individual countries that are lending to Sri Lanka, they, and you have the Indian credit line that has offered support for mm-hmm. Sri Lanka's um, immediate needs. In the last year, they've extended it further now. So those actors tend to have a lot of power. So in, in that kind of context, it, it was really important that those actors would ideally engage with civil society and get a true sense of uh, what was going on in the country Mm -hmm. in responding. And as they engage also, as there's this massive influx of money into the country, uh, you need to think about two things. One is you you have a system that was corrupt that actually led to a lot of the money being led astray. Yeah, which has been designed to facilitate that. Facilitate that. So then you're injecting whole mm-hmm. a whole lot of money back into that system. Mm-hmm. And so it runs a massive risk of re-corruption. Yep. And the second thing is even for international organizations or other states, they have to really ask them the question themselves the question as to whether they're bolstering a corrupt regime. Mm-hmm. You know, at what point do you make that decision? And I understand that there are sovereignty considerations and that you as a almost a humanitarian actor at that point of time, have to prevent people from dying on the streets. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's it's not a simplistic argument, yeah. but you still have to work within this kind of system. So in this context, we as T.I. Sri Lanka and a few and five other civil society organizations actually got together to form a civil society initiative uh, to propose reform action, reform recommendations on anti-corruption for re- economic revival in Sri Lanka. Mm-hmm. So what we did in the context of the IMF's assistance to Sri Lanka was to try and keep the IMF informed and the government informed about Sri Lanka's local context. So um, the IMF also, interestingly, for the first time in Asia, decided to carry out a governance diagnostic mm-hmm. in Sri Lanka um, because it also found that Sri Lanka's corruption vulnerabilities were macrocritical. Right
2: macro critical this is the phrase that the, the IMF uses in terms of yes. talking about why corruption matters to them.
0: Yes so thinking of it really from this kind of economic perspective mm-hmm. but uh, as civil society we also felt the need to really expand that definition of mm-hmm. what corruption is because as I as we already really? went into in quite a bit of detail this is state capture we're talking about so you can't assess that from a perspective of how good is contract enforcement in Sri Lanka? Is Mm -hmm. the central bank independent enough? That is not a good enough question to ask. You need to take into account the context that we are in a country where our local government elections have been illegally and indefinitely postponed by the executive against a court order. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you needed to take the full gamut of uh, and the full picture into account in in giving this assistance to sri lanka and we were keen that that governance diagnostic takes all of this into account so what we did was ahead of the imf's governance diagnostic uh we a few organizations so uh, t- led by tisl um Verite research uh, people's action for free and fair elections the national peace council the sarvodaya Shramadana movement and the center for policy alternatives so mm-hmm. six organizations local all local organizations uh we got together And carried out through an independent researcher carried out island-wide consultations focus group discussions to get a sense of what people thought Uh about corruption and what needs to change to fix the system and also um, had extensive discussions and interviews with experts on corruption uh, corruption in this broader sense so um, what we had at the end of it was 34 recommendations that we made and we published in a report the civil society Government's diagnostic report for Sri Lanka and I, I don't know if you recall but during the protests there was this widespread call for system change. Mm-hmm. Everyone even in Singhala even in the local languages this language of system change became commonplace but it was a relatively nebulous phrase and mm-hmm. right? so people talked about you know the president needs to go home, we need to clean up the system, we need to abolish the executive presidency but What exactly was it? There was no real shape or form. So in a sense, this governance diagnostic report, the civil society report, gives it that shape. And Mm -hmm. it makes specific recommendations about what needs to be done within six months, what should be done within 12 months, what in 24 months. But also then the IMF's own governance diagnostic came out. And we like to think in a way that civil society, how active civil society was, Uh, had a part to play in it, Uh because there's a huge overlap between the two reports, about an 80% overlap. And the IMF's own governance diagnostic is also one of the strongest I have seen, um, and talks Mm -hmm. about corruption quite strongly. Great. So basically, the civil society research analysis,
2: research with the population informed also inform the process the in a sense diagnostic
0: yeah we'd like to think so and yeah. we also consistently kept engaging with the IMF uh-huh. because they've, they've also been very interested in hearing civil society's um, input but also our recommendations is to our government it yeah. is not to the IMF sure because I mean far be it from us to say that the IMF is the saviour that will you know yeah. uh, cure Sri Lanka's woes. so it it is you know irrespective of whether the IMF is in the room or not these are things that the Sri Lankan government need to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it can't be just one of the recommendations. All of it has to actually work for us to fix the pool system. Mm-hmm. Because if not, it's like putting water into a leaky bucket. <laughs>
2: yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so I guess congratulations. This is a big success. <laughs> but it's also a really interesting example of using the courts, using this strategic litigation mm-hmm as an anti-corruption tool I mean, what do you think are the learnings for the broader community in terms of when this kind of action becomes necessary or is likely to work what are the um, kind of broader
0: implications yes so one thing about litigation is that it can be quite creative Mm-hmm. Um, almost anything can be done uh, if you have good lawyers i mean we know that we know corrupt actors are the best lawyers in That's the world right, yeah so <laughs> why not we might as well use that force for on, on the good side as well right you know yeah. to fight for the good you know on the anti-corruption side so i i would just advise to think creatively consult lawyers consult a broad spectrum of people on what can be done because different jurisdictions would obviously have different remedies available. Mm -hmm. So, and I know the anti-corruption movement, I mean, we've seen this in France, we're seeing it across the world, in Honduras, in in Ghana, actors using litigation for public good and in the public interest. So one is think creatively and always think of litigation wherever possible Mm -hmm. uh, because the nature of law and the nature of litigation is that you can't go on a whim. Judges can't go on a whim. Ideally, there has, there is a obligation to give a reasoned out decision. Mm-hmm. And if the facts really bear out what you're saying, if you have a strong enough case, you have a strong chance of succeeding. But of course, you're assuming that you have an independent judiciary. And on that front, I think anti-corruption actors also always have to keep fighting. This is something we talked about recently as well. One is that you need to bring attention to these cases whenever they're happening. Mm-hmm. People need to know. Uh, judges also need to see that there's widespread interest in these yep. cases, right? Mm-hmm. That it's not just you know one person going to court and trying to speak for the public interest, mm-hmm. uh, that there is public attention to these cases. And second, wherever there are attempts to dilute the power of the judiciary, the independence mm-hmm. of the judiciary, you also have to take whatever action necessary to try and protect that because once that crashes i mean the judiciary is called the last bastion of hope mm-hmm. so it really i mean you tend to lose hope if if you come to a state where you've also lost your judiciary
2: yeah so we need to really be on high alert about threats to judicial autonomy Absolutely. yeah thank you it's been such a pleasure to to chat to you thank you so much i should also say that it's you know it's particularly great to see what work you're doing because of course you're a former um student of sussex's masters in corruption and (laughs) governance so we're extremely proud of what you're doing
0: um
2: and um yeah keep up the great work (laughs) thank you very much thank you for having me on the podcast thanks for coming